First Timothy chapter 3. Let's start where we're going to start tonight. First Timothy chapter 3. And as you turn there, just so you understand uh, what's happening, uh, this is a continuation of the series um, that Pastor Mitchell mainly has been teaching. And I think uh, Brother Max probably taught part of it. Did you, did you get in on First Timothy, Brother Max, at any stage yet? Yeah, I thought so. I remembered it well. <laughs> Sorry. I know he did good. He does a good job. I just don't remember exactly what he did. And don't ever take that personal because it's, it's a miracle I find my way home at the end of each service. Uh, my memory is um, it's quite a frightening thing. First Timothy chapter 3 this evening. Um, we're gonna, uh, the verses that I've been asked to cover are verses 14 through 16, which finishes out chapter 3. Uh, but you'll probably notice, if you're a person that does have a good memory, that uh, so far, I don't think we've even got to verse 1 just yet, have we? Okay. And, and so what's going to happen is that next week, uh, Pastor Mitchell is going to backtrack us through the start of the chapter and cover off the first uh, 13 verses. Okay? And that's interesting. Because some of you remember he went pretty slowly through the book of Proverbs, but he's going to cover 13 verses uh, in the time that it'll take me to cover three. So if you think he's slow, <laughs> you're looking at Captain Slow here. Um, but I, I hope it'll be a blessing. And so you, uh, I'm not going to uh, preach and cover what he's going to cover next week, but um, there is some important context that you need to know and understand there that we'll be covering tonight. So let's stand as we read these three verses, and then we'll get uh, pretty much straight into it. This evening, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, uh, Paul says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness... God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask now that during this time of Bible study, teaching and preaching, that you will truly speak through me this evening. Lord, may I speak in a way that people leave here tonight, not just understanding your word, but also with a desire to act upon it and to do something about it. And we ask that you would meet with us tonight in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we got, I, I got a little... Uh, oh, oh, I have to get it started, do I? What do I do to get it started? Just press forwards? Point at you. Point at you. <laughs> I'm pointing at the thing. That's, I work with computer systems. Duh. Uh, do I have to get closer to you and point at you? We're about to find out. This is a trap of some sort. I, I'm pressing. Way, there we are. The stable church with the unstable preacher, or the unstable clicker. Um, really, a lot of what uh, in the first two verses here, in verse 14 and verse 15, uh, I'll probably just ask you when I need to click Sam, and you can do the click-click bit, and I'll use the green laser to point at Mr. Beaver when he's misbehaving. Um, 
Now, stability. That's, that's what we want and what we need in, in a church. And we got three verses to cover. These are super important verses. I personally think they're super interesting verses in the Bible, and I hope that you get a blessing by being in church tonight. I hope when you leave, you'll say, it was good to be in the house of God. Paul starts off with these words here, these things write I unto thee. And so because we haven't covered the first 13, 13 verses of the chapter yet, it's important to understand what he's talking about when, he's, when he says, these things write I unto thee. Paul has, in the first 13 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's wrote about the office of a bishop. Uh, and Pastor Mitchell will explain next week exactly what a bishop is, uh, I would guess, as part of it. And then the Bible goes on to explain, uh, if you want to be a bishop, uh, there are certain expectations and there are certain things that you should be if you're going to be a bishop. One of them is, you should not be a lady. Okay? Uh, sorry, Joyce, <laughs> you're wrong. Uh, and all you other lady pastors and preachers out there, you're wrong on that. And it goes on, because it says, it's, and you might say, oh, but it doesn't say anything about whether it has to be a man there. It does say the husband of one wife, which I'm pretty sure means it would be a man. Um, and it goes on and describes the office of a bishop. And then after that, it goes on and talks uh, furthermore about a, what a deacon should be. A deacon should be, uh, and it even talks about uh, what a deacon's wife should be as well. And so all of those things are the things that are described in the first 13 verses. So when Paul says, these things write I unto thee, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about bishops, deacons, uh, and their respective wives. And what's interesting about this is that Paul is instructing Timothy on how to select the officers for the church at where? Does anyone know where, which city he was in, Timothy was in, when Paul wrote this letter to him? He was in the city of Ephesus. Correct. Okay? Uh, and that's important. Because what's implied here is that Paul, who is absent... We know that he's absent because in the middle of verse 14, he says, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Paul is absent from the church of Ephesus. Uh, our Bible teaches us that Paul was the man who planted and started the church at Ephesus, correct? And then he handed it over to Timothy. Then he departed from there and he writes a letter back to Timothy sometime later and explains to Timothy what he needs to look for uh, in a bishop and in deacons for the church at Ephesus. And so what is implied here, reading between the lines, is that it was neither Paul's intention, Timothy's intention, nor God's intention for Timothy to be the long-term pastor of that church. You say, why not? Because that isn't what Timothy's true gift was. If you look at First Timothy, uh, sorry, Second Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter four, and verse number five, Timothy's gifting from God 
in ministry was not that of a pastor and was not that of a deacon. But verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. What was Timothy's ministry? It was as an evangelist, not as a pastor. Uh, and so one of the things that you'll learn from that is that, uh, is that the office of an evangelist is a person who would be capable of taking care of the affairs of a church, but it wouldn't necessarily be their long-term intention to stay there uh, in that role. And that's what Paul was doing there with Timothy. Um, now, Timothy's ability as an evangelist was a very special thing that he had. Chapter 4 and verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says to him, he says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Uh, Timothy had a special gift, a special ability, uh, and it wasn't an innate and a natural born ability. It was something that was, what did the verse say? It was given to him by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Now, I'm, I personally don't know that that kind of uh, impartation of gifts today takes place as it did in the days of uh, the apostles. I think that uh, Paul had that, uh, uh, that gift and ability to do things uh, that you and I in this day and age don't have that ability. But it is clear here that uh, Timothy was in the, uh, his ministry was that of an evangelist, and yet he was in the functional role as an interim or caretaker pastor of the church. And the time was coming where it was getting ready for time to be, uh, for Timothy to leave the church at Ephesus. And what did Paul want to make sure happened? He wanted to set things in order so that after Timothy's departure, the church would continue to be stable. God help us, we have a lot of churches that have lost their stability completely, and there are many right now that are in the process of doing so. Churches are becoming unstable because they have leadership that is unstable in many cases and they have congregations and pews filled with unstable Christians. And Paul did not want that to happen. By the way, uh, before we proceed on, there are, there are a grand total. There are a grand total of two men in the Bible who are specifically called out and named as being evangelists. They are Timothy and, and Philip. And so if you ever want to know what a biblical evangelist does, study Timothy and study Philip and you'll understand what a biblical evangelist is and does. And if you do that personal Bible study, you may just be shocked to find out that a biblical evangelist doesn't bear a whole lot of resemblance to a 21st century evangelist. 
And in my personal role, I believe that God has called me to the ministry of evangelism. And so what I have done is I haven't tried to find out what all of the other evangelists who are busy with bookings and meetings and they're famous and well-known, I haven't tried to see what they're doing and copy them. Instead, I've tried to study the Bible and model myself upon them. You'll notice my calendar isn't full. Maybe that's a reflection of me. Maybe it's also a reflection of the fact that a lot of Christians nowadays just don't want old-fashioned New Testament Christianity anymore. But be what God wants you to be rather than what someone else thinks that you should be. Now Paul said, I write these things, but then he says, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, Notice that? Hoping to come unto thee shortly. Does Paul here have a desire? Yes. What is his desire? It's to come to be with Timothy at Ephesus, correct? Can I ask you tonight, was it a good desire? Yes. I want you to understand that he had good intentions. He had a good desire to get to Ephesus. He had good intentions to help Timothy select pastors, deacons, in order that the church would be stable. His desire was good, his intentions were good, and yet he did not know if it was going to happen. You say, how do I know that? Because he said, but if I tarry long. Paul says, I'm writing this to you. I'm hoping you don't need what I've written, but I might not get there. And if I don't get there, you are going to need what I've written. Do you know why God has given us the written word? God has given us the written word because sometimes God's people have good intentions and they never get to the point of carrying out on those intentions. And if people don't turn up when you hoped they were going to turn up, you'd better have the word to, quote-unquote, fall back on. And that's what we need today. All my life long, I've been observing, observing Christians quite often. You know one thing Christians all love to do? Christians all love to appear to be pious. We really do. And so a lot of Christians... They'll have this almost, this almost mystical, hocus-pocus kind of attitude about the will of God. Is that true? And I, I'm, look, I'm all for following the will of God. I'm not mocking the will of God. I seek the will of God in my life as well. But it's fair to say that the will of Paul there was to get to Ephesus and help them out. And maybe it even, you might say, well, it was the will of God. Well, Paul doesn't even know if it's going to work out or not. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you. The will of God is not some mystical thing. The will of God is not going to be revealed to you like a set of turn-by-turn sat-nav instructions on your cell phone. That's not how the will of God is going to work out. People say, well, I'm, I'm seeking the will of God, and I believe that you ought to seek the will of God. But can I tell you something tonight? Don't sit around and do nothing until God tells you, in 250 yards, turn right. 
Because He's not going to do that. It's not how the will of God works. Old Bob Jones Sr., you know what he used to say? Go as far as you can on the right road. Okay? In other words, don't just sit around and do nothing waiting for your instructions. Find out what's a good way. Find out what's a good direction. Go down that path. And you know what? If after a while God wants to redirect you, it's easier to redirect someone or something that's already moving than it is to get something moving that's sitting still. Okay, get moving, get busy, do something for God. And, and if it's not exactly the right uh, thing, if it's with the right intentions, if it's with the right desires, God will redirect you at a time appropriate. But just get doing something for God. It would seem that Paul's desire was to help Timothy choose great candidates for pastor and deacons, gave him the instructions just in case he wasn't able to get there in a reasonable time frame. And these instructions, these things that he said you should look for are in a bishop and in a deacon and also the deacon's wives. I want you to read the second part of verse 15. He says that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Everything that precedes verse 15... In other words, verses 1 through 13, a lot of Christians use that passage over the last 50 or 60 years. A lot of Christians have used not just those 13 verses. A lot of Christians have honed in on a small part of one of those verses to try and prove that one or two preachers shouldn't be in the ministry. And in doing so, they have done what Peter described in his writings, they have rested or twisted the scriptures to their own destruction. They've said that these first 13 verses are the quote-unquote qualifications for the ministry. Be careful there. Be real careful. Because when they do that, and I'm not stealing Pastor Mitchell's thunder next week, but you know what they do? They read verse 1, they say, This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Don't worry about that. The husband of one wife. Let me tell you what that means. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are we doing skipping over that bit that said, A bishop then must be blameless? If you're in a hurry to get past that to get to something else, there's a reason why you're in a hurry to get to there. They're trying to use it for their own purpose to try and prove that someone that they didn't like shouldn't be in the ministry and it's just because they didn't like that person or they didn't like what they said. If these verses are the quote-unquote qualifications for the ministry, Peter should never have been in the ministry. Because Peter was not blameless and it says a bishop must be blameless. Paul said in Galatians, he said, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Peter wasn't blameless. You say, well, oh, you, have to define, oh, you have to define what blameless means. It's funny how when you point something out like that, what a great big hurry they are to slow down on that verse. No, we need to, you were skipping over it five minutes ago. Now you're going to tell me, you're going to have to tell me what it means. I'll tell you what it means. It means what the Bible says it means. It says that the ministry be not blamed. 
When a bishop must be blameless, it doesn't mean you can't blame him for running a stoplight without coming to a full stop. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, it's talking about that the ministry be not blamed and because of what Peter was doing there in, with regards to the Gentiles when the Jews were present, the ministry was being blamed because Peter was being a hypocrite. Okay, uh, so if that's the qualifications for the ministry, then Peter's got no business being in the ministry, but God uses him to write two books of the Bible as well as being the chiefest of the apostles at the church at Jerusalem. So that's not what it means. I'll tell you what it means. It means what it says here in verse 15. Those things were given so that thou mightest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Now, I believe if someone's not doing all of those things, you ought not select them to be a bishop. Okay? But if the occasional mistake is made along the way, that bishop ought to look at it and say, I ought not to have done that. And he ought to repent of having done the wrong thing. And the same, by the way, the same is true of anyone in the church. Every single one of us, we all ought to know how we ought to behave ourselves in the house of God. Let's not just all look at the preacher and say, well, he's the one getting paid. He's a professional. We're amateurs. No wonder we're making mistakes. Did you ever see a golfer, a professional golfer, that missed a shot that they shouldn't have missed? And you're like, that guy's getting paid millions of dollars and he missed. You miss the same shot nine out of ten times and you give a bit of grace for yourself. I'm just an amateur hack. Have some grace for the ministers as well. That'd be nice. I, I would say that the first 13 verses when people say, oh, they're the qualifications of the ministry, I would say just be careful there. Maybe they're the, biblically I'd say they're more the expectations of the ministry. Let's look at the rest of verse 15. He talk, starts talking here about the church, uh, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's why I selected this picture here, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Paul here ascribes great importance to church. Now, we rightly so ascribe great and tremendous importance to this book, correct? But you need to understand there is a movement, it's not just here in the United States, it's big amongst saved people in Australia as well, there is a movement of Christians who are so hypercritical of all churches within their region that I just can't go to any of those churches because they're all compromises. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay home and I'm going to study the Bible by myself. And that's great. You should study the Bible by yourself. But not at the expense of going to church. Um, the Irish preacher in, in our lifetime, Ian Paisley. How many of you know of Ian Paisley? 
Irish guy, politician, preacher, great preacher. He was on vacation once and they went and visited some church and apparently the preacher was as lame as lame could be. And that's, you know, if you're going to go visit a church you know nothing about while you're on vacation in some sleepy little vacation town, it's possible that that's going to happen. You're going to walk into a church and you're like, oh, this is a dud. <laughs> and um, there had been times throughout their years, I, I read a, a book written by Eon Paisley's daughter, fascinating biography of him. Uh, the book was called My Father, written from the perspective of a daughter, so I guess she ought to know him if anyone knew him. And... Um, she said that they, um, there were times, Ian Paisley was a little bit fiery. There were times when he would go visit a church that he knew nothing about and the preaching was so pathetic, he would, uh, from time to time, he'd be inclined to get up and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the preacher during the preaching. I'm not recommending that. He was probably from Mooresville, uh, based on everything you said. Um, but he, um, his daughter wrote that one time, they just sat there and for all the world, and he'd gathered all of his belongings up and it looked like he was getting ready to get up and they, the kids all knew the drill. Like, Dad's getting ready to get up, we're going to the car, we're leaving, because he would get up and storm out on occasions and he didn't this time. And after the church service was over, his daughter asked him and she said, Dad, why didn't we get up and leave? We, we normally get up and leave when the preaching's that bad. And he said, you know what I've learned? He said, I've learned that we should stay. He said, because even if the preacher didn't know his business, I know my business and it's my business to be in church. That's a good attitude. The church, according to Paul here, is what? It's the pillar and ground of the truth. Much of the doctrine, if you want to sit at home and not go to church and say, well, I'm just going to study the Bible for myself... The problem with that is much of the doctrine, much of the practical application of the Word of God is faithfully handed down from generation to generation of faithful preachers. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things that thou hast learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The application of God's word comes through God's man who learned it from another one of God's men, who learned it from another one of God's men, down through generations, and that application of God's word is given to us through the church. And your internet guru is no substitute for a faithful pastor in a solid church. Even if your internet guru is a right-wing fundamentalist, King James-only, Bible-believing, second generation, this, that, or the other, I don't care what his pedigree is, there's at least half a dozen uh, people who believe just like we believe at the moment, and their internet ministry is 15 or 20 times larger than the people sitting in their congregation, and God's not in it. He's not. God is in the church, not in the internet guru ministry. And if you run into any of those gurus, tell them I said hello and tell them what I think of their ministries. The ground, the church is the ground of the truth. It's the foundation, as it were. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But watch what he says next. 
But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man laid than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of the church, universal, is the Lord Jesus Christ, correct? But the foundation of the church, local, is also supposed to be built on that foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not need a new foundation. We need the same old foundation. But locally within our congregations, there is something that we need, and that is we need pillars. By the way, uh, if a foundation, if the purpose of a foundation is to ensure the building doesn't shift with every wind of doctrine, that same passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the previous verse, Paul said about the people of the Corinthians church, he said, ye are God's building. You're the building. And you've been laid upon the foundation so that the building doesn't shift. Because if the building shifts, what does the building do? It cracks and falls. We must be on the foundation and secure on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be a stable church and stable people. But that stability is not just because of the fact that there is a foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Paul writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talked about the pillar as well, did he not? Interesting word. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And verse number 9. And when James, Cephas, and John who seemed to be, what? Pillars. Perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. James, Cephas, and John, according to Paul, were the pillars of the church at Jerusalem. Correct? See how the Bible defines what, what it means? When the Bible says that the church uh, of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth, the ground is the foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, but the pillars of the local church are, they're the strong men of that church. See why staying at home and not going to church isn't going to work? You say, oh, I've got the word. I'm founded on Jesus Christ. Where's your pillars? Where are they? They're in a good, Bible-believing, stable, local church. You say, how will I know what a pillar is in a church? They're the men who are well and firmly grounded in the word. Look at those pillars. They're anchored straight into that foundation, are they not? They're in the word. You know what else they are? They're steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you know what God says about those men? He says, you need them. You need them. 
In times gone by, in younger days, even when I was enthusiastic for the Lord, there were times when, uh, spiritually speaking, I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't a pillar in my church as a young man. Uh, And I would otherwise have cracked under the pressures and strains. But I thank God for pillars in my churches as I was growing up who helped sustain me. You need them. You've got to have them. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. Now we come to verse 16, and my, I'm going to fly through this. I'm about to give you, and this is not an exaggeration, I'm going to give you hours of intense study in a couple of minutes. So fasten your seatbelt, hang on, and let's go. I need Sam to click us through a little bit. Are you able to do that, Sam? Or do I have to come running down there again? Uh, I don't know. Let's just go one. Oh, the seven mysteries. Yeah, that, let's yeah, go to the next one. All right. Uh, give me the next click. And the next click. And the next one. Good. Stop there. Okay. I'll be ready for you in again in a minute, Sam. He's a good clicker, isn't he? Full points for Sam's clicking. Uh, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Let's just pause there for just a second and I'm going to introduce something to you really quick. In the New Testament, the Bible teaches us there are seven mysteries in the New Testament. Seven of them. Guess how many times the word mystery or mysteries appears or mysterious appears in the Old Testament? Not once. Now there's seven mysteries in the New Testament. The number that I'm about to give you is more than seven, but guess how, it's one of those coincidental things. Guess how many times the word mystery or mysteries is referenced in the New Testament? More than seven. Nine, it's more than nine. Uh, How many books are in the New Testament? (laughs) 27. There's 27 references to mysteries in the New Testament one uh, corresponding to every one of the books of the New Testament. Uh, And these seven mysteries are there. All seven of the mysteries, they have a few things in common. All seven of the mysteries were alluded to in the Old Testament, but they were not understood in the Old Testament. That's why they're called mysteries. And even though there were things, there were allusions to them, there were references to them in the Old Testament, they were not revealed or understood until the New Testament. And in particular, in particular, you say, oh, Jesus revealed the seven mysteries. No, he actually didn't. That wasn't what his ministry was about. Now, Jesus is the key to unlocking, hence the picture of the key in the background there with a book. Jesus is the key to unlocking uh, and solving the seven mysteries. But the person who revealed those seven mysteries, God revealed all seven of them through Paul. Matter of fact, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter on love or charity, he said in verse 2, he said, And though I understand all mysteries... God gave special revelation through Paul to reveal and understand these seven mysteries of the New Testament. Um, And they are, as you see here, the first one, the mystery of godliness, which we're going to cover in just a second. 
Uh, the second one is, if Sam, Sam, if you can click with, yeah, there we are. The second one is the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Stop and think about that. No one in the Old Testament had Christ in them. Very few people in the Old Testament even had the Holy Spirit in them. And the ones who did have the Holy Spirit in them, God would sometimes take it away from them. Paul, uh, not Paul, David was terrified. In Psalm 51, after he'd committed adultery, what's his prayer? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And, he's, and God said, he said, I, I, he said I'll, I won't take my spirit from Solomon, your son Solomon, the sure mercies of David, like I took it from Saul, which was before you. So not only do we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which they didn't have in the Old Testament, except for very few people under limited circumstances, but none of them had Christ in them. When we got saved, you got no idea how good you got it. There are people that say, oh man, I wish I was as rich as Abraham. I wish I was as rich as David. I wish I was as rich as Solomon. You got something far better than any of those Old Testament saints had. You got Christ in you. And it was a mystery in the Old Testament. Oh, the fact that God had a son wasn't a mystery. But the fact that God's son would dwell in you, oh, that was a mystery. The mystery of the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. The church is talked about in the Old Testament, but the Jews didn't understand it. The mystery of the restoration of Israel found in Romans chapter 11. That wasn't understood there in the Old Testament. The mystery of the fact that God would use the church to provoke Israel to jealousy. They didn't get any of that. The mystery of the rapture of the church. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Oh, the mystery of Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation. And the seventh one being the mystery of iniquity, which is the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. All of these things are written about in the Old Testament, but they were not understood in the Old Testament. The clues were there, but no one had put all of the clues together. Did anyone ever play that detective board game? I suspect Mrs. Plum in the library with the candlestick. And, and You know which game I'm talking about? Clue. It's called Clue. Yeah. It's like a mystery game. And no one had put all of the pieces together, but God, through Paul, put all the pieces together of these seven mysteries and revealed them to us. Now, this is good stuff, and we're not going to cover all of these. But can I tell you what? You would be stunned. You would be stunned how many good Christians have no idea that there are seven mysteries in the Bible and that that's what they are. I did some, in doing all the research for this message, I looked online about the seven mysteries of the Bible, and there's all these people out there, there's these Pentecostal nuts. I read, I saw this thing about this book written by this Pentecostal guy, and he talked about the seven mysteries in the Bible, and I thought, oh, it. Pentecostal dude's got it figured out. And I went and had a look. And it's like, the mystery of getting God to unlock the secrets of your wealth. No, no. Right, the mystery of what that Pentecostal guy's been smoking in his spare time, that's the mystery I want to know. Um, they don't know. They've got no idea what's going on with these things. And you know what? That's a terrible thing because you know what God said about it? 
God said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that the ministers of Christ are supposed to know these mysteries and they are supposed to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. Preachers have a responsibility to be teaching these mysteries. Now, I don't believe you teach it all day, every day, every week. You focus on the milk of the word and the meat of the word and things like that, but you've got to get into these mysteries as a faithful steward of the word of God. So tonight we'll hit one of them, the mystery of godliness. The irony of ironies. Don't you love how ironic the Bible is sometimes? It says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And you say, what's the irony? The irony is that very phrase, great is the mystery of godliness, is one of the most controversial phrases in the entire Bible. But you know what Paul said when he wrote it? He said it shouldn't be. If Paul said in the early first century that what comes next shouldn't be controversial, and here we are 2,000 years later and it became controversial, then who got involved? God is not the author of confusion. Someone didn't like what comes next. Brother Sam, if you can click me a click. Okay, well, let's pause there. That's a good click. Uh, those, you can't probably see. Those are little people. They're little emoji type things of, of men. And on the left, we have a lot of them. And you know what that whole lot of men symbolizes? It symbolizes so great a cloud of witnesses. And on the right is witnesses who are against the King James reading. Now you say, what do you mean the King James reading? Where that phrase says, God was manifest in the flesh. All of the witnesses on the left say the correct reading is God was manifest in the flesh. The two jokers on the right say, uh, it doesn't say God. It says, who was manifest in the flesh? Meanwhile, these guys over here are saying, no, no, it's God was manifest in the flesh. And the two jokers on the right are going, no, I don't like that. It's who was manifest in the flesh. Someone doesn't like the idea that God was manifest in the flesh. I'm going to give you the evidence tonight. See how many people, who counted them so far? Anyone counted that? Okay, I'll tell you how many. 252 witnesses on the left-hand side. And what I mean by witnesses, I mean Greek manuscripts. Of the available manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, there are 252 of them that say, Theos, God, was manifest in the flesh. And there are two that say, who was manifest in the flesh? Go to court with 252 eyewitnesses against two and see who wins. Every English Bible prior to the King James Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. Tyndale said it was God in 1534. Well done, Tyndale, you got the right answer. The Great Bible in 1539 said it was God manifest in the flesh. The Geneva, Bible, the Geneva New Testament in 1557 said it was God manifest in the flesh. The Bishop's Bible of 1568 said God was manifest in the flesh. Then the King James Version of 1611, God was manifest in the flesh. Every English version after 1880 does not say God. Something changed and it wasn't the manuscript evidence that changed. 
people against the King James reading place great emphasis not on both of the two readings there. They place great emphasis on one of those two readings, Alexandrinus. Alexandrinus, which is also known as Manuscript A. Ironically, ironically, since the Greek words for theos, and, and when they would write theos, God, in Greek, particularly in what's called majuscules, majuscules are copies of the New Testament where every letter of every word was written in uppercase. What do we call that? Shouting! Who does that when they send text messages? Grandparents do! All the young bucks, no, you don't shout. You don't uppercase all your writings, okay? And yet there are entire copies of the New Testament that are all written in uppercase letters with no spaces between the words. It's horribly difficult to read. Uh, and Alexandrinus is one of those manuscripts written in the uppercase. It's a majuscule. In particular, it's an unseal, if you want to get technical, uh, and with no spacing between it. And what they would do, instead of writing all of the letters for the word theos, they would shorten it to just two letters. And when they shorten it to two letters, they would put a line over the top of it so that you would know that it was a contraction uh, of that word theos down to a shorter form of it. The challenge there is they would do exactly the same thing with the word who. They would shorten that word into a two-letter form as well, write a line over the top of it so you would know it was a contraction. Um, and there is a part, the first of those two letters were very, very similar. You'll see in a minute, I'm going to bring it up. Uh, I'm not going to bring it up. Sam, Brother Sam's going to bring it up on the screen when he hits the magic click button when we're ready for it. Uh, and so they place a lot of emphasis on one of those two witnesses over on the right-hand side, Alexandrinus, and they say, Alexandrinus says who? And you know what the problem with that is? Alexandrinus didn't originally say who. It originally said God. And someone came along and altered it. Brother Sam, if you can click us through our next click. That's Alexandrinus. Let's click again. And click again. And now he's over here. Now it's not 252 witnesses against two. Now it's 253 witnesses against one. The judge is going to laugh that one out of court. And how can I prove, how can anyone prove that Alexandrinus actually belongs on the left with the 252 other guys and not on the right? How can we prove that Alexandrinus was modified? I'm glad you asked. By the way, People who are against the King James Bible, people that we would call Bible correctors, what do they always do? They refer to two main manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and when they can't get what they want from Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, then they run to Alexandrinus. In other words, Alexandrinus, generally speaking, isn't one of the quote-unquote majority texts, manuscripts. It's not always in favour. It's not a super accurate, it's not a super reliable manuscript, but it did originally say Theos. So in other words, they try, and impress, they try and impress upon you the idea that the oldest witness is always the best. And so they call on Alexandrinus because it's one of the oldest and it's one of the only ones that says what they want it to say, or at least they think that it says what they wanted it to say. But listen to this. 
They created a theory that Alexandrinus was modified much later by an alleged corrector or corrupter if their theory was true. The problem is they don't have a suspect. They don't have a whodunit. They don't know that. But the text, and let's click through one more click, Brother Sam, and we're actually going to bring up the text of Alexandrinus and you'll get to see it for yourself. Oh, one more. There it is. That's Alexandrinus. And you can see there that there's two red circles. There's a red circle down here and there's a red circle up there. That one down there is very, very clearly Theos. It's God. How many of you people with decent eyesight, you can see the line above it that I was talking about where it shows it's contracted? Can you see in the center of that O-looking thing, there's a very, very faint line going through the center? Can anyone see that? Raise your hand if you can see that faint line going through. Okay, that's the bit that shows you that it's actually Theos. But if we go up to... Where did it go? Oh, there it is. Oh, thank you, Brother Sam. How cool was that that he did that? If we go back to here, that same first letter, can you see that it's smudged? Can you see a line going through it? Not really. But you can see a dot in the center of it, correct? If you put that dot in the center, it says who? If it has a line through the center, it's Theos or God. But you can see quite clearly all around it. What does that look like? Fingerprints, smudging. Over hundreds of years, people spent so much time examining that one word, examining that one letter, that they damaged the text beyond the point where it can be understood. How can we ever prove what Alexandrinus said? I'll give you the answer. In the years 1628 through 1652... Alexandrinus was in the custody of the Royal Librarian of London. The Royal Librarian of London, his name was Patrick Young. How many of you have ever heard of Usher's Chronology of the Bible? Anyone heard of Usher's Chronology of the Bible? Bishop Usher? Um, Patrick Young told Archbishop Usher, he said the original reading was God. In other words, long before now... Usher, 400 years ago, before the text was damaged, uh, Usher got it firsthand from, uh, from Patrick Young, and Young said, I'm telling you, the line was there, and it said God. In 1657, another guy by the name of Hewish, my wife will love that, that's the word she uses, Hewish, uh, a guy called Hewish examined Alexandrinus, and you know what he said? In 1657, the line was present and it said, God. In 1707, Mill examined Alexandrinus and he said, it clearly has the line and says, God. In 1716, Wettstein examined the same text and said, it says, God. In 1738... A man by the name of Berryman said this, If at any time the old line should become altogether indiscernible, there will never be just cause to doubt, but that the genuine and original reading of this manuscript was God. A man by the name of Woyd, who examined Alexandrinus in 1785, you'll notice I'm putting these in chronological order. What did they all say up till then? 
clearly it's God, clearly it's God, clearly it's God. But we reach an interesting inflection point in 1738 when Berryman says, if a time ever comes when people doubt it. You know what Berryman's seeing? He's seeing the physical text is getting more and more damaged and deteriorated and saying, I can see what's going to happen. One of these days, someone's going to say it doesn't say God. And so we reach that point, and then Void, who examined it in 1785, he said, I, ha I, I have seen it in 1765. In 1785, Void said, I saw it 20 years ago, and the line was still faintly visible, but by 1785, it had ceased to be visible. Folks, someone is trying to correct the King James Bible, not just with bad evidence. They're ignoring the clear evidence of people who had seen the evidence before the evidence had been damaged by the ravages of time. It's not to say that the evidence is leaning in favour of the King James reading. It's a slam dunk. It really is. And in tripping over themselves to use the ancientness of Alexandrinus as proof that the King James reading is wrong, the irony of irony is that if ancient evidence is superior to that of later witnesses, there are at least six credible sources who saw Alexandrinus in more ancient times and they all said, it said God. And they also acknowledged that the line proving it was God was fading with time. Thus, the modern critics are in denial of the most ancient witness while hypocritically claiming that the King James reading doesn't follow the best and most ancient witnesses. They're the most crass hypocrites known to mankind and their scholars and their scribes and their authorities in Bible colleges all across the land. And why I get passionate about it? Because you need to know if we're going to be pillars and uh, on the ground of the truth and if we're going to be stable Christians, we don't want to be led aside by the slate and cunning hands of men who are crooked. Whew. We must ask ourselves, what do these people have against Jesus being God? That's what we've got to ask. Furthermore, and I'm wrapping up, many of the ancient church fathers in their writings spoke in favour of God being manifest in the flesh. Alexandrinus is a 5th century manuscript. Remember that, 5th century manuscript. They'll say oh, all of the readings for the King James are much older. Do you know how many readings there are uh, other than Alexandrinus? The 252 that I talked about, that 252, they are all 9th century or later. See how that could cause people to worry? Oh, they're new. They might not be right. The old one said, just calm down. Because one of the ways that we can know what the originals said is to find out what the early Christians who had seen the originals said in their writings. And you know what they said? Cyril of Alexandria he said, I consider the mystery of godliness to be no other but the word of God, the Father, who himself was manifest in the flesh. That's what Cyril of Alexandria said. 
Gregory of Nyssa, who died in 394 AD, 100 years before Alexandrinus was written. Gregory of Nyssa said this. He wrote prolifically on this specific verse and some 22 times, some 22 times in his writings, Gregory of Nyssa said, God manifest in the flesh. Euthalius said it was God incarnate in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Chrysostom, who died in 407 AD, once again nearly 100 years before Alexandrinus was written, mentioned at least three times in his writings that it was God manifest in the flesh. Dionysus of Alexandria confirmed the King James reading, and Dionysus goes back to AD 264. And there are three witnesses even earlier than that. Ignatius, Barnabas, and Hippolytus, who are all 2nd century. When we say 2nd century, they lived somewhere between AD 100 and AD 199. All three of those guys. You want to talk about the best? You want to talk about the most ancient witnesses? You know what all three of them said? God was manifest in the flesh. The ancient church fathers were clearly in favour of God, and they saw earlier manuscripts than any manuscripts still in existence today. Thus, we have at least eight eyewitnesses of evidence that is no longer available. And these eight eyewitnesses spanned a period of time of over 300 years, giving them thus no ability to collaborate with each other. This is not a conspiracy to write in favour of God manifest in the flesh, and they all testify the same evidence. If you tonight have an English Bible that says anything other than God was manifest in the flesh, you have a counterfeit, you have a fraud, and you have something that is not following evidence, it's following a spirit. And it's a spirit that's against the deity of Christ. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 40, and this is the very last verses we'll look at tonight as we wrap this up. Because I didn't teach you the mystery of godliness. I just taught you the evidence for it so far. Did I not say that all seven mysteries were there in the Old Testament but not understood in the Old Testament? What is the mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh. If I'm right, then I have to be able to show you from the Old Testament that the Old Testament said that God would be manifest in the flesh. Isaiah 40. And verse number 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. What's the word Lord there? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. There are many places in the Old Testament where the Lord is not written that way. Look at chapter 38 and verse 16. O Lord, capital L, lowercase r, O, lowercase r, lowercase d. When the word Lord is in full capitalization, what is it it a reference to? Jehovah God. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Jehovah God. If you say, oh, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Make straight in the desert a highway for who? Our God. And Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is fulfilled in the New Testament in the 40th book of the Bible, in the third chapter of the Bible. Picturing chapter 40, verse 3 of Isaiah, a book with 66 chapters, correct? 
So you go from the 40th chapter to the 40th book, you go from the third verse to the third chapter of the 40th book, Matthew chapter 3, and you see John the Baptist turning up and preaching. What's he preaching? Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know what Isaiah 40 chapter 3 verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says? It says God was manifest in the flesh. Regardless of what the modern scholars say. One last verse in the same chapter. Verse 9. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. God manifest in the flesh is one of the mysteries. It was there in the Old Testament and none of them knew it. But it was revealed through the preaching and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And great is the mystery of godliness. Can I tell you tonight, in conclusion... God wants us to be stable. He wants us to be on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not want our faith in this book to be shaken. I hope tonight, what I've done is I've given you one of the hottest and one of the most controversial passages against your King James Bible tonight, and I've destroyed their arguments. Do not lose faith in this book. And do not lose, do not lose your appreciation and your understanding of how important it is for you to be part of a stable church with men who are pillars, who study the word, believe the word, stand on the word, and live lives where they are steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord.